construction of this lovely building, but stewardship understood as the means by which we can make the world a better place, our outreach. Um, last week it was about uh, economic injustice uh, and at-risk children this week. It's the, it's the refugee crisis. It's the reality that there are in the world today millions, millions of people who have lost their home and everything that goes with that materially and psychologically. And, 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 and there is resistance that is mounted against the, against the possibility that, the, that these people have of finding a home. So the question is, what can we do about it? And Jess is head of our, uh, of our outreach, of our uh, refugee committee. So Jess, if you would uh, fill us in. Morning. Um, just over three years ago, there was a photo in the press of a small child lying face down dead on a beach. And this child was Alon Kurdi, a three-year-old little boy from Syria of Kurdish descent, whose family was fleeing the Syrian war, trying to get to Greece from Turkey on a small plastic inflatable raft that capsized. And at this point, the Syrian war had already been going on for about four years and refugees were in the news. But this image invoked an immediate international emotional response. And I think that's because, um, you know, I started today thinking about statistics. Um, there are 68 million displaced people around the world, 25 million of whom are refugees, which means that they're entirely outside of their home country. And over half of those are children. You know, but I think while numbers are important, it's easy for numbers to lose the stories and the faces and the humanity behind those numbers. And so I think that's why, you know, this image of, of a photojournalist said of the image of Elan, sometimes, you know, images are so powerful that the public and policymakers cannot ignore what the pictures show. And I think that that's why in September of 2015, when the outreach committee was meeting, we talked about this picture at length. And just to give you some context of the outreach committee, it has been a part of the culture and the fabric of St. John's for decades. And it's currently under the leadership of Matthew Taylor. It is a group of, of tirelessly dedicated leaders who provide meals to the homeless on a regular basis, who build houses every spring, who clean homes and do yard work for the elderly in the district, who tutor children in our district schools and teach them what their report cards mean, who provide opportunities through the support of Bishop Walker School and the Quaza Center in South Africa who participate in grassroots advocacy efforts through Washington Interfaith Network and the list goes on. And all of these outreach efforts are made possible through, through your stewardship and they are the embodiment of, of Jesus' command to us to, to give to the needy and to help the poor and to correct social injustice and to love, and to love our neighbors. Um, and so I think that that's why that night, when we were talking about this image of Elan, the outreach committee you know, kept asking, what, what can we do as a church and, and as a committee? You know, what should we do? What do we have to do as Americans, as Christians, you know, as, as people with, with common humanity? And, um, and so we, that next year, put together a proposal for the church, um, recognizing that St. John's is already an incredibly educated and, and well-informed parish. We wanted to bring the refugee crisis to the forefront of our minds and to our conversations. And so we focused on educating ourselves more about the crisis, about learning what others in our community were already doing in response, and about really thinking about what role St. John's could play in that response. 
And so in the first year, in 2017, we attended panels and discussions and roundtables and movie nights. St. John's Book Group read City of Thorns, which is the story of nine refugees that live in the largest refugee camp in the world in Kenya. We visited the refugee exhibit at the museum. We tailored our annual Lenten food drive to the specific needs of refugees, collecting basmati rice and garbanzo beans and vegetable oil. And we gave those donations to No One Left Behind, which is an organization that specifically focus on, focuses on supporting former translators in, Afghan, in Afghanistan and Iraqi that helped the US military. We hosted a screening of Salam Neighbor here at St. John's, which records the, the tale of two filmmakers who go into a Syrian camp to learn what it's like to live there. We met with leaders from St. Columbus, from St. George's in Arlington, from Lutheran Social Services, from Episcopal Migration Ministries to learn what others were doing, where the needs were, where we could fit in. And when those organizations reached out to us with needs, we responded. We collected, we collected toys and baby items. We collected winter jackets. We supported the Refugees First Thanksgiving Dinner, which is an event that helps welcome refugees into the American life, understanding what the spirit of that holiday is. We brought in Reverend Canon Mark Stevenson, who's the director of Episcopal Migration Ministries, who spoke at the adult forum last December and told us not only about the refugee crisis, but what the Episcopal Church is doing in response. And at the end of the year in October, the, the vestry adopted this statement of support for our efforts. The vestry of St. John's Church, Lafayette Square, recognizes our Christian obligation to welcome strangers to our community with hospitality and respect. We support the work of the St. John's Refugee Project in building relationships with refugees and immigrants in the metropolitan Washington community, learning their stories and discovering ways that our congregation can provide assistance. As followers of Christ, we are committed to showing compassion, mercy, and love to our neighbors of all religions, knowing that every person reflects the image of God and deserves to be treated with dignity. So at the end of the first year, we looked at everything that we had learned and, and everything that we had been doing and thought, how, you know, how can we best move forward into year two and where can our efforts best, best be utilized? And so going into 2018, we set out a few goals. Um, one of the first challenges for refugees is getting their feet under them initially. They come here with nothing. And I think, you know, finding things like finding an apartment and getting insurance and registering your children for schools, you know, these, these tasks are daunting when you've lived your whole life here. You know, not to mention starting from scratch and doing everything all at once. You know, and, and that's, a, that's a big job to, to provide this kind of wraparound services and, and support for a family. And we recognized as a committee that we weren't quite at the place where we could provide those holistic services for a family. But what we did think that we could do, and what we did do, is reach out to Lutheran Social Services, which is a resettlement agency in the DMV area, and register as a good neighbor, which means that when a family comes in and their, an apartment is found for them, it needs to be stocked. So we used a State Department list of required items and, and stocked the apartment from head to toe. And we planned, we knew we wanted to do this, we planned, we prepared, but at the end we just had to wait. And we waited and we waited and we finally got a call in August and said, there's a refugee family coming in this weekend, can you help? And so we pulled together and the efforts of this congregation were incredible. Within four days, we found everything from couches and rugs to bedding and sheets to towels, pots and pans, cleaning supplies, toys, lamps, you name it, the, the whole apartment was stocked. And it was, 
this is, I, I can't emphasize enough what an incredible experience it was to be a part of the group that delivered those items to this family. Every load, load after load we brought in, the family was just so tremendously grateful. Every single, every single load, thank you for your generosity. And it was just, it was an incredibly um, moving experience that I, that I wish you all could have shared and I hope that I can, I can capture and share with you. Um, secondly, another challenge for refugees is when they, when they first come in, resettlement agencies will help them find an initial job. But often those are low-skilled, low-paying jobs that don't quite help them make ends meet. And frequently, these are refugees that are very skilled and very talented and very driven. And I think that that was something that really resonated with our committee. And so we really wanted to find organizations that were working for job development efforts for refugees and support them. And so Leela Taff and Cheryl Mason headed up our efforts and found, through the International Rescue Committee, IRC, a way for us to support those efforts by providing two scholarships for refugees who were, who were going through a certification program. We also provided 10 laptops for refugees who were taking classes. Um, finally, our third line of effort, you know, we all know that life is rife with unexpected circumstances, you know, but a lot of us are, are blessed in having a, a community, family, and friends, a safety net for when things go wrong. Um, but I think, you know, when you first come here and you don't have your feet under you, not having those roots in the community and having that safety net, I think, can make things additionally daunting. And so we really wanted to be a part of the network of religious organizations and nonprofit organizations that provide that safety net for refugees in this, in this area. And so we, we reached out to organizations and we built our relationships and we responded in kind every time we received, every time we could when we received a response. So we helped ends meet for specific families. We helped a woman set up an in-house daycare center. Um, and again, responding to needs as they, as they arose. Um, so I think, you know, I mean, we're, we're proud of what we've accomplished as a committee over the last two years. And I want to emphasize how grateful we are for the support of the congregation, the vestry, and the clergy. We simply just could not have done it without you, without your support, without your stewardship. Um, but I want to wrap up with one more thought. When we decided that our church needed to respond to the worldwide refugee crisis in a tangible and meaningful way, um, it was in correlation with a shared understanding of national policy discussions that we should be doing more, both individually and collectively. And the refugee cap was raised from 85,000 to 110,000 in 2016 directly in response to the current refugee crisis. But over the last two years, it's been decreased, first to 45,000 and most recently to 30,000. This is the lowest it's ever been in the history of our country in the time that the world has the greatest need. And so I can talk about it from a practical standpoint. You know, refugees, I've said, have tend to be skilled and talented and driven. We're talking about Madeleine Albright and Albert Einstein, Gloria Stefan, Sergey Brin, Henry Kissinger, Sigmund Freud. These people were all refugees. It's not debatable that they, they, they contribute to the economy and social fabric of our country. We can also talk about national security. There's a national security risk from the chaos and upheaval of having 68 million people displaced from our homes. We are safer by contributing to the solution. And finally, we should be demanding that our government act in a way that is reflective of the American moral leadership in the world. But aside from all of these practicalities, more than that, it comes back to the command to us as Christians. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. And so now, going into our third year as a committee, we're, we're at a crossroads. We want to set up more apartments. We want to help more refugee families. But it's hard when the refugees aren't coming into this country. And so we're starting to think about our next step, which is a logical one, which is advocacy. And we ask that you join us. 
Hopefully if you've noticed over the last few weeks in both the Word and the Bulletin, there's been a, there's been a Senate bill, a bipartisan sponsored bill um, that we're asking for your support. The, um, it's called the Afghan Allies Bill of 2018, which requests 4,000 additional special immigrant visas for former translators that assisted the U.S. military in Afghanistan. It was, un it was not attached to the NDA 2019, so it's now sitting as a standalone bill in the Judiciary Committee. We're asking that you call your representatives and you tell them that you support this bill. Additionally, there are two House resolutions that are aimed at, at increasing the refugee cap. We want to support those. Aside from the immediate impact on refugees that don't have a place to go, longer term, these policy decisions are effectively dismantling our infrastructure to resettle refugees in this country. If we allow this to happen, even if the cap is raised down the road, the organizations that we need will no longer be in existence. There are nine resettlement agencies of which Episcopal Migration Ministries is one. They are all waiting with bated breath to find out whether or not their State Department contracts will be renewed. We cannot stand by and let this happen. Presiding Bishop Michael Curry and Bishop Marianne have both spoken out about our obligation to support refugees. St. John's is a powerful, connected place, and we need to use our voice. We should be a leader in the diocese, and we should be a leader in this country. So today, I just wanted to use this, this platform to express my gratitude, but also to ask you to prayerfully consider joining us as we continue to explore how we can best be stewards in our community and use our voice to reflect the compassion and the action that we've been called to. Thank you. Thank you, Jess. James and John went to see Jesus and they said, we wanna be with you. We wanna be up front, in the spotlight, next to you. Not a, not a terrible request, really. You know, in a town where everybody wants to be in first place, it would be normal, I would think. And um, uh, so I don't know that we should be so hard on James and John. They're, they want to be with Jesus. What's wrong with that? There's a lot to say about this little passage from the Gospel um, but I want to just focus on one piece of it, and that is this. Um, they said they wanted to sit with Jesus. Now, I know that's a figure of speech, but I think it's a lot more powerful or a lot more important than a simple figure of speech. They want to sit. They want to maintain the status quo. They want to keep things the way they are. And Jesus says, well, wait a minute. Can you drink the cup that I drink? Can you lead the life that I lead? Jesus' life is all about movement, all about moving toward Jerusalem, and as we know, beyond all that. And the disciples want to sit. Why not? Things are going pretty well, right? Jesus is widely admired, not universally, but widely admired. Crowds come from everywhere just to hear what he has to say and see what he might do. Who wouldn't want to keep that going. Jesus wouldn't want to keep that going. Jesus always looks for more. There's a uh, Catholic theologian named Paul Waddell who distinguishes between a faith that is um, uh, uh, magnanimous and a faith that is pusillanimous. There'll be a vocabulary test after the service. Um, Here's what I'm, I'm quoting him. Here's what he says about a magnanimous faith. A magnanimous faith 
is a faith which is great of soul and spirit, and it characterizes persons who remain resolutely focused on the utmost possibilities of life. The utmost possibilities. People always reaching beyond the possible to the utmost. A pusillanimous, pusillanimous means uh, cowardly. A pusillanimous faith lowers its sights and regularly opts for whatever is easier, more pleasurable, or quickly attainable. I suppose we, we could say the same thing about a church, couldn't we? That there is a church that might be magnanimous and a church that might be pusillanimous. A magnanimous church is always reaching for more, always going beyond the possible, always trying to find other ways to make the world better, to live the life that Christ would have us live, always being called into a, into a, a future of great possibility. And a pusillanimous church, a timid church, is a church that's more inward-looking and sets goals that are puny, easy, worried more about us, not going beyond us. Why outreach is so important in the church, any church, but this church especially, is it takes us beyond ourselves. It takes us to places that we might not otherwise go, individually anyway, but we can go as, as the body of Christ. There is no more crying need in the world today than the plight of all of these refugees. And if we are to be the voice of moral authority in this part of the world, this, particularly this part of the world, then we need to be proactive, we, we need to do our utmost. We need to stretch beyond. We need to leverage our resources and try to make a difference for all of those people, none of whose name we know, but all of whom we know to be troubled, homeless, destitute, deprived. It is our Christian and moral responsibility to do that. One last thing for me, the last little sentence, phrase in today's gospel says, uh, Jesus died, uh, Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many, a ransom for many. That little phrase has, there's been as much ink spilled on that little phrase as any other little phrase. And all of it is just searching to find out what in the world Jesus might mean when he said, give his life as a ransom. Jesus died for, you see signs everywhere, don't you? I don't, I do not like religious cliches, but you see signs on the highway that say Jesus died for us, Jesus saved us. I sometimes think that they're up there without any real thought given to them. But I can tell you this for a fact, Jesus saves. Jesus saves, Jesus died for us. You know why? Because we need to be saved from ourselves, from our worst instincts, from our most primitive reaction, which is usually self-preservation. We need to understand that we can be magnanimous, that we're called to be magnanimous, generous in our life, in our love, in the world in which we live. This church does it and can always do more. And that is who we are as a people. That's who we're called to be as a people. That's who we must be as a people if in fact we're gonna follow Jesus. Amen.